All right. Well, in case you don't remember, we're studying hermeneutics. <laughs> How to interpret scripture. Okay. <clears throat> I feel as though for review we ought to start all over again. <laughs> but we can't do that. So we're in the section on the principles that you need to keep in mind as you interpret scripture. Okay. We've talked about the first two of these. We'll briefly review those and then uh, pick up with the third one. We won't finish the third one tonight. Um, so again, as you are interpreting Scripture, you need to keep these principles in mind, and the next section is on the procedure. So as you're going through the procedure, you're thinking of these things. Okay. <clears throat> so the first one we talked about is a priority of the original languages because the originals were inspired, copies and translations were not. So if you want to get the point of the original, you need to go back to the original. Okay. Now there are helps, and I gave you the resource list at the beginning, to language helps to help you get into the uh, original languages. Uh, we talked about things like idioms and figures of speech and cultural issues. All of those are involved in the language, the grammar, the syntax. Those all relate to meaning. And if you're going to understand the meaning, you've got to understand these things. To understand these things, you've got to get back to the original. Okay. Um, we talked about, we gave some examples of those things, the conditional sentences in Greek as an example of the grammar and the syntax and how that uh, determines meaning. The second principle was the accommodation of revelation, that is, God accommodates revelation to our level of thinking. He says what he says in a way that we'll be, we will be able to understand. Okay, so that has some ramifications for us. Um, we need to be aware of literary genres and devices, the genres such as the law, the history, prophecy, that's all different kinds of writing, and so you have to analyze those different kinds of writing in different ways. You can't interpret a poem the same way you interpret history, okay? So they each have their own um, approaches. And then the literary devices like parallelism and chiasms and paragraph structure and lists of things, how things are arranged on the page, uh, the arrangement will help convey the meaning. Okay. We saw the we saw this example of a chiasm in in 1 Corinthians 12 and at the end and the beginning of 1 Corinthians 14. <coughs> Excuse me. Just as an illustration that we looked at the structure of the paragraph in in 1 Corinthians 13:8 to 12 to show how that structure supports Paul's point. He's not talking about specifically when spiritual gifts will end, which is the way many people interpret the passage, he's talking about the Corinthians' improper attitude towards spiritual gifts. They were focusing on the gifts rather than the reason for the gifts. And he points out that the, the important thing is how you express those gifts, how you use them, which is to edify each other. If you focus on the gift, you, you're heading in the wrong direction, and it's not going to be effective. And the way he structures the paragraph with the parallels the, between the now situation and the then situation when we get to heaven shows us his focus. So learning to see the structure, the patterns in what is written will help you get the point. You, you kind of have to look at the words like a painting instead of looking at what they mean, <laughs> see how they're arranged, how they're structured. So that brings us to up to date. So this is the third principle, and that's progressive revelation. Progressive, of course, means in progress. Things are happening. <clears throat> this is important to understand because not all of the writers of Scripture had the same perspective when they wrote. 
So you kind of have to understand their concept of God <laughs> in order to understand what they were saying. You can't apply what we know about God to something they wrote back then because they didn't know as much about God as we did. God reveals himself a little bit at a time over time. That's progressive revelation, and it makes a difference in how you interpret Scripture. <clears throat> so God revealed himself in stages, uh, beginning with his relationship with Adam and Eve in the garden and progressing to a um, complex revelation in Christ. I have several verses there listed, and we'll, we'll kind of summarize these. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses, talks about God speaking to us through the prophets, but now he speaks to us through his Son, which is a complete revelation of God. And it says there, <clears throat> well, in John 14, when Jesus is giving some final words to his disciples before he leaves, um, Philip just says, okay, just show us the Father and we'll be happy. <laughs> That's all. Just show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, where have you been for the last three years? <laughs> if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. <laughs> and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory. He is the glory of God. And he is the exact representation, the New American Standard says, um, of God. And the, the, that word exact representation is the word character from which we get our word character. And it's, it's the word that was used to indicate a, a, um, an impression when they used to seal documents. You, you probably are aware of this. They would put soft wax there and then stamp it with a signet ring or some other thing to show this is official or whatever. <clears throat> Well, this word character means that impression in the wax. It's exactly the same as the signet. So that's what Jesus was to the Father. He was the exact representation. You see him, you see the Father. <clears throat> and John 1.14, same point there, uh, says we, you know, the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten. And that is kind of reflected in Matthew 17, the first few verses, where we have the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus allows his divine glory to show through his humanity, uh, giving evidence that he was God. Okay? So he is the final and complete revelation of God to us. But they didn't have that. You know, Adam and Eve didn't understand God the way we do. They didn't know as much about God as we did, as we do. They had a different kind of relationship, a face-to-face -face kind of intimacy. But as Jesus said at the end of John, or near the end, you know, God is going to dwell in you. That's a little bit different. <laughs> That's a little more intimate understanding of God. So they understood God differently than we do. We have a more complete understanding. Uh, Galatians chapters 3 and 4, Paul talks more about progressive revelation. He talks about the difference between the promise God gave to Abraham and the law which he gave to Moses. And his point, basically, just for context's sake, is that the law, which he says came 430 years after the promise, did not nullify the promise. Okay? God promised Abraham a whole bunch of things which we will go over eventually. <laughs> okay, And we learn a lot about God from his promise to Abraham. We learn that he is sovereign. He tells Abraham, get up and move. <laughs> and he says, I'll be with you. So he let him know across the, the fertile crescent there up from... So we learn that he's sovereign. We learn that he is compassionate. He took care of Abraham, protected him. 
um, promised him uh, the land. <laughs> He's making provision. We learn about God from that promise. But when Moses comes along and God reveals, gives him the, the law, the Ten Commandments and all the ceremonies and sacrifices and all that, we learn a lot more about God. We learn his moral character. The Ten Commandments is God's a reflection of who God is, his morality. In Romans 3.23, it says, All has sinned and come short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? That's his holiness. That's his nature reflected in the Ten Commandments, that whole Mosaic Law system. So we learn a lot more about God in the, from Abraham to Moses. Okay, He's revealing more and more of himself. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you you cannot, in fact, Acts 17, when Paul is talking to the Athenians, he said, in ages past, God ignored the sins they did. <laughs> he says, from from Adam on, people still sinned, but God didn't count it against them because there wasn't any law against it at that time. You can't accuse someone of breaking a law that doesn't exist. Okay, so in, we learn about God from that. You know, God is fair. <laughs> He's just. Okay, so yeah, they did things that we would look at and say, "Wow, you know, that's you know." That doesn't sound quite kosher. <laughs> but there was no law against it. Okay. Um, it reminds me of a, a, a typical question that skeptics ask when they're trying to disprove or discredit the Bible. You know, they'll ask, where did Cain get his wife? Yeah, yeah. And, and they, they, well, obviously he married one of his sisters. And they get upset. Well, that's illegal. You know, that's incest. You can't do that. Well... Two things. Back then, the genetic pool was not corrupted, okay? so it was not as bad. You don't do that now because you can have serious problems, genetic problems with the offspring if you marry a relative that's too close. Technically, we're all related. <laughs> we're all in the same family. Um, that's one thing. Secondly, there was no law against doing that back in the garden or in the vicinity after they were kicked out of the garden. That didn't come until the Mosaic Law. So you can't say they broke the law or they did something they shouldn't have done when God hadn't said yet, don't do that. Okay. So there's no law against it. We would look at it from our perspective, again, progressive revelation, we know more than they did. <laughs> so from our perspective, we would say, that's not a good thing to do, but from their perspective, they say, why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a good example, yeah. Yeah, there's, there are a lot of inferences we have to make uh, based on things like that. We look at the circumstances and we say, well, there's no specific law against that, but obviously it was not a good thing to do because God condemned it. He punished it. Okay. Um, it's kind of like in, in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, uh, God provided skins to cover them. Where did he get those skins? An animal, okay, which is the first sacrifice <laughs> to to cover sin. All right, so obviously that was an object lesson for Adam and Eve, and I think s sacrificing started then, and from then on, when they disobeyed whatever that disobedience constituted, they had a sacrificial s system in place. Yeah, different sacrifices. 
Right. And if nothing else with Cain, um, at the very least, you would say the conscience was at work. Yeah. Because when God confronts him about it, he didn't fess up what he did. Mm-hmm. You know, instead he said, I'm going to worry as God brother's keeper. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he obviously knew that he had done to the Mosaic Law. And we learn a lot more about God through the Law than we did through the promise to Abraham. <clears throat> In uh, Galatians 4.4, 4, uh, Paul points out that at the right time, God sent the Messiah. You know, that he does things according to schedule. Things unfold in a systematic way. You have the examples or the instances throughout the Gospels where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, all those religious leaders. <clears throat> and they get so mad at him that they want to kill him. <laughs> and it says that he just walked away. So it wasn't his time to die, and so God prevented them from doing that. Okay, So everything works on a schedule. And he said that a couple times in the Gospel. It's not my time yet <laughs> to do this. <laughs> so Revelation is progressive. Excuse me. <clears throat> a couple more examples. Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Jesus is sending out his disciples uh, two by two, and he's giving them instructions. And he tells them, go only to Israel, not to the Gentiles. Why would he tell them that? The message that they were proclaiming was the same message that John the Baptist proclaimed. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, therefore repent. You know, in, his, in other words, the Messiah has come. <laughs> God's representative is here, therefore straighten up your lives. That didn't apply to the Gentiles. So why take that message to the Gentiles? <laughs> this was to the Jews. And in chapter 15, Jesus is up there in um, either Tyre or Sidon, one of those cities in Phoenicia on the coast, eating with a... Jewish family and a Gentile woman comes in and starts begging him to heal her daughter and Jesus said I came only to the to the house of Israel and she kept begging and he said it's not right to give the children's food to the dogs <laughs> you know and he's all for the Jews you know because his message was for Israel at that time not the Gentiles she kept begging of course demonstrating faith and so he said okay you're, you're obviously trusting me to do this so I will honor your faith and he healed her <clears throat> so he went only to the the lost sheep of Israel but what happens in Matthew 28 19 the Great Commission go into all the world whoa whoa what happened <laughs> before it was just Israel and now it's to the whole world what happened the new covenant happened. <laughs> okay, Christ died and inaugurated the new covenant, which applies not just to Israel, but to everybody. And therefore, the message has changed. We learn more about God. His, his grace is no longer just for Israel, but for everybody. And therefore, the proclamation changes. So we have learned more about God, progressive revelation. Uh, I put in there Matthew 13, 31, 33, a couple of, of uh, illustrations Jesus gave to make the point. And, you know, all through the Gospels, his basic purpose was to wake the Jews up to what God was really all about in the Old Covenant and that it was leading to the New Covenant. And they needed to get their spiritual lives in shape instead of being superficial, you know, by paying attention to the Pharisees. So he gives two examples of what the kingdom is like. One is like a mustard seed, which he says is a very small seed, but it grows into a bush that is strong enough to support birds' nests. <laughs> it starts out small and ends up big. And the next illustration in that passage is the leaven. A little bit of leaven affects a big lump of dough. 
So it starts out small, but it ends up big. That's the kingdom, he says. The kingdom started out small. It was only Israel. But it ends up big, including all nations, all people. And that's part of the progressive revelation. The more we learn, obviously, the more we know, (laughs) the broader the scope of things. So that's kind of what progressive revelation is all about. I don't know. <laughs> We're not learning anything new. <laughs> now, um, well, I suppose I have to qualify that now. <laughs> no, we're not having any new revelation from God because it's all complete in Christ and recorded in the Bible. You know, there's nothing new to say. However, on a personal level, The more we interact with God, the more we learn about God. (laughs) But that's a private thing. That's not any new revelation about God. Yeah, but we're we're getting closer to the end times, and we understand more about um, uh, the revealing of God's plan. And things are so much clearer now with um, um, Israel going back to the land and uh, the nations beginning to line up and so forth. Um, so in that sense, God is revealing himself more fully as our understanding is uh, increasing. Well, yeah, it, it, it kind of gets down to semantics. Technically, all of those things that we're seeing happening have already been revealed. That's not new revelation. That's not new truth. It's just that we're seeing it happening. Okay, so as you said, we have a clearer understanding. But that's not new truth. No, it, it's just our, our <coughs> understanding that's, um, that's becoming more clear. Right, right. So, getting back to hermeneutics and how progressive revelation, or, yeah, progressive revelation applies to hermeneutics. To understand any given text, you need to consider how much the writer and readers knew about God. (laughs) That is the degree of revelation that they had and the dispensational placement. So, as I mentioned before, you cannot interpret an Old Testament passage based on what we know about God now because the writers of the Old Testament didn't know as much. So you have to kind of put aside what we know and go back and think, what did they know? Uh, Not always an easy thing to do. Um, So the degree of revelation and the dispensational placement. What what does dispensational mean? Are you familiar with that term? It's a wonderful um, vision of the 70 weeks of years mm-hmm. and um, he didn't understand necessarily how this was all going to um, work out I, I think that as Daniel wrote these things down he, he was um, he didn't understand what he was writing uh, other than that it was God's truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we understand more fully now because it's, uh, uh, we're looking back at it. Mm-hmm. And the dispensation of grace, mm-hmm. he was in the dispensation of, um, of law. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure where I'm going. <laughs> okay. Well, let's just... Uh, the events of Sunday given out to get going here. Um, Dispensationalism is one way of looking at the organization of Scripture. Okay? There are actually two ways to look at it, dispensationalism and covenant theology. Now, we're going to talk about both of those, but we're not going to do an in-depth study of those because that's not our purpose. 
But you need to know enough about these to be able to understand how they affect your understanding of Scripture. Okay? So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, dispensationalism is kind of a, f- a fundamental or foundational principle um, that most conservative denominations follow. Okay? Um, we're not going to go into the history of these things because that's going to be controversial and it's going to take us 10 years out of our way. <laughs> so, we're not going to get into that. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Dispensationalism. A dispensation, well, actually there are three definitions, maybe even four. You brought up legal. Okay. Um, one, uh, one definition of dispensation is an allowance. An allowance to allow somebody to do something. Job, the first couple chapters, God allowed Satan to harass Job. So we could call that a dispensation that God gave to Satan. He allowed him to do something. In fact, there was a movie out years ago called The Devil's Dispensation. <laughs> it's all about the devil being allowed to operate in certain circumstances up to certain limits. That's one understanding of dispensation. Another one is is like a commission. Paul was designated as the apostle to the Gentiles. His job was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That was his dispensation. God commissioned him to do that. That's another understanding of dispensation. The dispens or the definition of dispensation that we need to focus on relates to periods of time. Okay. And the Bible never talks about this. Okay. This is something you, you learn as you look back. Okay, from our perspective, we look back at scripture and we analyze scripture and we can say, Oh <laughs> the, the in that sense, a dispensation is Uh, the way that God managed his kingdom on earth during different periods of time. He dealt with mankind different ways during different periods of time, and each of those periods of time is a dispensation. And we're going to talk about the dispensations in a minute here, Uh, but I want to give the background first so you have some context. Okay. So when you are studying Scripture, this goes back to dis, the, the dispensational placement. Okay, like the dispensation, you said we're in the dispensation of grace, the church age. You know. uh, the Old Testament up through the Gospels was the dispensation of the law. Everything was in Jewish law. Okay. <clears throat> so understanding that dispensational context helps you get an idea of what was going on in the mind of the writer. You know, why did he write that? Well, that's what he knew. That was the dispensation he was living in. Uh, The other way to look at things is, as I said, covenant theology. Instead of looking at Scripture on the basis of the time periods in which God dealt with people in different ways, Covenant theologians look at how God dealt with people on the basis of the covenants or agreements that he made. When I was in seminary and we were studying these concepts in theology classes, it's almost funny if it weren't tragic, but in the hallways between classes, (laughs) there were debates going on between students. Some students that are very emphatically promoting dispensationalism and others equally emphatically promoting covenant theology and just going back and forth and I'm standing back and watching and listening and I finally came to the conclusion I wanted to tell all these guys I I would have except they were so angry and they weren't listening anyway I wanted to tell them you don't really have an argument because you look at scripture Obviously, God dealt with people different ways during different time periods. Dispensations are obvious. And each dispensation starts with an event that changes things. On the other hand, 
you look through Scripture and you see God making covenants with people, agreements with and he deals with them on the basis of those agreements. So I'm thinking, what's your problem? <laughs> they, they both work. They're not mutually exclusive. There is a problem, however, and that gets into the application, the ramifications of these. Dispensationalism is based on the, the uh, approach to interpretation that we are using, the literal grammatical approach. You look at scripture, you analyze it, and you can see, oh yeah, dispensations. Covenant theology uses the allegorical method. Scripture doesn't mean what it says, it's symbolic, and you have to supply a spiritual meaning to what Scripture says. And really, um, I don't want to don't want to make you question your salvation, but the early church, the church fathers and stuff, they use the allegorical method. <laughs> they lean toward covenant theology. They wouldn't call it that. Okay. But even even uh, theologians uh, like Augustine, you know, held up as one of the great theologians of the church. He used the allegorical method of interpretation. <clears throat> but we're not going to get into the history <laughs> because, again, that takes us way out of the way. Well, can I, can I touch on what I think is one of the biggest hermeneutical debates going on today? Mm-hmm. Um, you made a statement that um, you know, we interpret the Old Testament based upon its dispensation, but as it really happened, it was understood at that time. Whereas the covenant theologian says that the Old Testament must be interpreted through the lens of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's there's nuance here because we would say that the Old Testament is made more clear by the New Testament. Right. They would say the Old Testament is reinterpreted by the New Testament. So, in other words, if you were to just go into the Old Testament and try to understand it according to the way a Jew would have understood it, they would say that that's the incorrect way of going about interpreting that passage. Um, they they would say you you need to go to the New Testament and try to reinterpret it through the lens of the New Testament. The problem is the New Testament doesn't reinterpret each and every single right. verse of the Old Testament, so where there's areas that are not being, um, not explicitly uh, referred to in the New Testament, they'll refer to an allegorical kind of method, saying, well, this is what the apostles did. The apostles often kind of threw their own allegories or, or, or treated this passage in a symbolic way, so we have the right to do that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's, that's one of the biggest hermeneutical debates that's going on out there mm-hmm. right now is, um, is that they would say that um, you need to interpret the Old Testament according to the New Testament and we say no, the Old Testament stands on its own, but the New Testament makes it more clear. Yeah. Yeah, I like to think of it, yeah. I like to think of the, the Old Testament is like a picture book. We see God interacting with people. There's not a lot of explanation there. <laughs> we just see actions and interactions. So it's a picture book. The New Testament puts captions under the pictures. <laughs> it helps to clarify what, what was going on there. Okay. <clears throat> but it doesn't give us a definitive interpretation. You can't... With the literal grammatical method of interpretation, which as we've discussed before is the only one that really works, <laughs> you have to take a text for what it is in itself. You can't apply some outside information. You can't work backwards. We'll see that uh, later on. What's this? January? Um, <laughs> later on. <laughs> we'll, we'll, when we talk about systematic theology and biblical theology, you can't interpret any passage of Scripture based on systematic theology. Systematic theology is a summary. You've know, you, you got to take each text on its own. <clears throat> so I think we'll be able to finish up this handout. Um, I want to give you a handout that covers both the dispensations and the covenants. I originally put this on one sheet, a chart, because I like, I'm a minimalist. I like to get things in <laughs> the simplest form. The problem is I had to make the printing so small to get it on one sheet. You can never read it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Plus, another drawback on the, for the chart is that I've got them lined up, and the covenants and the dispensations are not necessarily parallel. Sometimes they're syncopated, okay? Um, but we shall see. So, 
I'll hand this out and then we will go over it. We might finish it tonight, we might not. Dispensation side first. Um, we start with the definition. Uh, in the parentheses there, it comes from the Greek oikonomia, which means management or economy. We get our word economy from that. It comes from the word oikos, house. So this is household management, basically. Okay. So the idea is that God managed his kingdom on earth different ways through different time periods. Then there are two definitions given there, and I need to give a qualifier here. I did not write this. I would be embarrassed <laughs> if I had written this. <laughs> I don't know who wrote this, but if they had been in any of my composition classes, I would have had to take them aside and talk to them. <clears throat> So don't blame me. <laughs> that brings up another point. I got this off the internet, and I neglected to put down <laughs> the website. I did this. I did this years ago. I know. However, if you go on and you Google dispensationalism or covenant theology, you'll get thousands of websites. <laughs> okay. Yeah. If anyone has a, an old Schofield Bible, I, the Schofield notes really go deep into mm -hmm. dispensations mm -hmm. and that's why I first heard it dispensations mm -hmm. so yeah. I, it's very interesting to read through it and, uh, and, and see what they have to say yeah uh, as with all commentaries you gotta be careful <laughs> yes it kind of reminds me of that song <clears throat> my faith is built on nothing less but Schofield notes and scripture press <laughs> <laughs> you got to be careful. <clears throat> so, we'll go through this and try to make some sense out of it. Anyway. Yeah. So, the first definition there says, the method or scheme according to which God carries out his purposes toward men is called a dispensation. So, this relates it to the way God manages, not necessarily the idea of a time period, but the way God manages is in encapsulated in a time period. <laughs> it says there are usually reckoned three dispensations. Now this brings up another point. If you're going to be a serious student of the Word and do some research, you're going to be surprised. <laughs> because there's a lot of inconsistency. Because each scholar is approaching his study from his own point of view. This guy says there are three dispensations. As you see down the page there, there are nine listed. And other people have listed different numbers of dispensations. And they call them by different names. <laughs> so be ready for inconsistencies. All right? It's going to happen. Now, if you, if you put all of these disparate lists together and compare them, you'll see they all cover the same thing. They do it in different ways. But they all cover the same thing. So there's no real inconsistency in the substance that's in the presentation of the substance. For example, he gives these three dispensations, the patriarchal, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes, the Mosaic or Jewish, that's the law, and then the Christian, that's age of grace. I think those are really more like three categories of dispensations. If you go down the list of nine here, you could probably fit all those nine, you know, various ones into those three categories, okay? Uh, so, again, there's a difference here in the way it's presented, but the substance is the same, all right? <clears throat> um, then after the parentheses there, it says, These were so many stages in God's unfolding of his purpose of grace toward men. 
So that's what dispensations are all about. God's unfolding, we're back to progressive revelation again. His purpose of grace toward men. I think it's more complicated than that, but that's what it says. Now this next sentence is weird. The word is not found with this meaning in Scripture. You think, why did he say that? (laughs) All it means is, the Bible never uses the word dispensation to mean what he's defining it here to me. This is what you learn as you go back and study. As you analyze, you come up with the idea there are periods of time. The Bible never says, oh, this is organized in periods of time. (laughs) That's all he means. The Bible doesn't say that. It's like the word rapture doesn't occur in the Bible. But based on descriptions, you can kind of fit that concept. The second definition, we talked about this, a commission to preach the gospel. There are some references there. I, I already mentioned Paul being commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles. That is his dispensation. They didn't include the the definition of an allowance. But that's kind of outside. Anyway, now this next sentence I really have to apologize for. (laughs) Drives me nuts. Dispensations of providence. Providence is capitalized because it's another word for God. God is in charge. God is doing this. Okay, he's arranging these dispensations. Dispensations of providence are providential events. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> that's, that's a big duh. <laughs> it's a tautology. It's a repetition. You know? It's like the nursery rhyme. You know, There was an old woman who lived under the hill. And what's the next line? No, this is the hill. And if she's not gone... She lives there still. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's an obvious truth. So he, he kind of tries to clarify whoever wrote this with the rest of the sentence, these events which affect men either in the way of mercy or of judgment. So that he tries to say that. <laughs> but I don't think he does. Anyway. <laughs> That's, the point is, these dispensations are periods of time or methods in which God demonstrates either his grace or his judgment to mankind. We are in the age of grace now, the dispensation of grace, the new covenant. When the tribulation comes, that's a dispensation of judgment. Okay. They're both dispensations. They're both managed by God. Okay. One's mercy... One is judgment. That's all he's saying here. Okay, God arranged these dispensations, and he either uh, distributes grace or judgment, mercy or judgment, which kind of contradicts the sentence up in the previous paragraph, which says that these are so many stages in God's unfolding of his purpose of grace toward men. Yeah, this I don't know if the same person wrote this or, or if different people wrote this. Well, he does have the purpose of grace for men, but he has to go to the judgment because men don't accept that grace. Right. Trying to help him out. <laughs> um, save your energy. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll just add, um, in the theological circles I'm in, dispensationalism is the minority. Mm-hmm. Um, so I almost feel like I have to apologize every time I tell people I'm a dispensationalist. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the reason is because um, outside of dispensationalism, there is a common misconception that dispensationalism teaches that there was different methods of salvation in each time. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and there may be some extreme forms of dispensationalism that teaches that, but dispensationalism itself does not imply that. Right. Um, I would argue, and I think you would too, that man was always saved by faith. Mm-hmm. It has always been by faith. Yeah, grace through faith, but um, and, and that's been true all going all the way back to Abraham, that the truth of Moses, mm-hmm. all the way through the law, all the way up through Jesus and past Jesus. Uh, but uh, God, as you mentioned, uh, He operated in different manners at different times, yeah. and, and that's that's all we're saying by dispensation. But it often gets um, straw man; it often gets misrepresented into something that it's not. So when mm-hmm. people um, when people criticize dispensationalism, if you come across people who criticize it, you, you may want to ask them, what do you mean what, what do you mean by dispensationalism? 
Correct. Because you will find that they have a different definition than even what we're talking about. Yeah. That's a key question to ask in any discussion where there's a potential <laughs> conflict. Like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Help me to understand your position. It, it sounds like they don't, because they don't understand, you know, how someone before Jesus could be saved, they don't understand that. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to make something up to yeah, that, fit that's, know, yeah. In, their, in their mind. Right. Well, that's the danger I mentioned before. You can't take the current situation and read it back, yeah. you know. Salvation has always been by God's grace, and when people exercise faith in what he tells them to do, that's always been the case. In the New Testament, it's more of a, an internal spiritual thing. In the Old Testament, it was very much by what we would call works. But they did what God told them to do because he told them to do it. <laughs> he said, when you sin, you offer the sacrifice and I'll forgive you. So they offer the sacrifice and receive the forgiveness. Um, well, we'll get into that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there, the the means of salvation. There's a difference, I guess, between the means and the method. The method has always been by God's grace, exercising faith in God's grace. But the means, we have sim a simple submission to the truth that God gives. They had more physical activity involved in it. They had to do the sacrifices, but they did those sacrifices out of faith because God told them to do it so it wasn't really they didn't say well I'm going to please God by doing this no God told them to do it <laughs> so they were obedient <clears throat> uh, well we're not going to be able to get into this but let me <laughs> let me uh, this idea of conflict uh, let me f finish tonight on that issue um, because there is a conflict between those who believe in, in covenant theology and those who believe in dispensationalism. And a lot of it's because of misunderstanding, I think, on both sides. But I found my observation, now obviously there are uh, exceptions, but my observation is that the covenant theologians are much more hostile toward dispensationalism than the dispensationalists are toward covenant theology. And I can affirm that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a group, an organization, I think it's called American Vision in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, I think. If you want any resources on America's Christian heritage, the founding and all of that stuff and God's involvement, they have super resources on that. AmericanVision.org. AmericanVision.org. Yeah. But they're covenant theology. <laughs> and when it comes to dispensationalism, you better duck. <laughs> because they don't have, they don't give any quarter to dispensationalism. We look to people like Lewis Berry Chafer, 1800s, who have helped found Dallas Seminary, and Charles Hodge. You know, we look to them as the theological bedrock of our denomination or conservative denominations. <clears throat> the covenant theologians see those people as instruments of the devil. And I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> Dispensationalism comes right out of the pit of hell, <laughs> according to the covenant theologians. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's, I think that's, because I don't, I don't view covenant theology as heresy. I think it's just a wrong understanding. Yeah. A lot of covenant theologians, a lot of, not all of them, but a lot of covenant theologians, though, view dispensationalism as heresy. Yeah. And a lot of it is because of misunderstanding. But when yeah. did this happen? This hasn't always been that way, was it? I mean, okay, well, did it get worse, like, I don't, a certain period of time? Yeah, well, <laughs> you mean the conflict? You mean the conflict? Uh, I don't know exactly when the conflict started. We can get into when covenant theology and dispensationalism started, but I don't want to do that because <laughs> that's going to lead to this, which leads to this, which leads well, to this. I, mean, I think Darby and Scofield were probably the two names that, that really kind of put dispensationalism on the rise, mm -hmm. and, and then conflicts kind of ensued. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah just in summary, covenant theology, the whole concept, is really the, the early church, okay? Dispensationalism didn't start until the 1800s. John, and that's one of their primary arguments. Yeah, 
John Darby, John Darby, Plymouth brethren in England, had a vision. By the way, the rapture comes in then too. The early church didn't believe in the rapture. Uh, so, actually, he wasn't the first. There was a 13-year-old girl in Scotland in the 1700s who had the same vision, but nobody listened to her because she was a kid. <laughs> so Darby comes along in the 1860, around there, and has this vision and starts teaching this in the Brethren Church, and it emigrated to America when people in that church came to America, and it spread, and now it's become, um, I would say, the predominant position among conservative denominations. Reformed denominations like Presbyterian and stuff like that, or covenant theology. <clears throat> well, doesn't uh, the covenant theology, don't they finally arrive at the church replaces... Yeah, replacement theology, yeah. yeah. We'll talk about that when we get there. Yeah. Well, and then they, they believe the church actually started the days of Moses. A lot of them do. Yeah. But the church really started with Israel. They'll say, no, it didn't replace, and it goes all the way back <laughs> to the Israelites coming out of the church. So, yeah. so. They have a linguistic problem there. <laughs> So, we will uh, next time continue with this. We'll go over the dispensations and the covenants. And again, I didn't write this, so we're going to find some issues with <laughs> the way things are stated here. And, and I think even some uh, theological and uh, historical problems with some of the things that are said here. Um, but we shall see. So, any other? Yeah. yeah Terry, uh, <clears throat> for the fast to know, if you ever give him a paper and tell him to, to check your grammar and all that, boy, he'll come back all marked. <laughs> 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 I made a mistake one time, and I got a mistake. I was just glad I got out of IBC way before Terry got out. All right, well, let's close.